you have your Bibles, please open with me. We're going to be in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, as my computer just turned off here. I, um, I'm going to do part two of a series that was started last Sunday, uh, talking about being a beacon of light. What does that mean, a beacon of what light? A beacon of uh, light for God. God has called us to be the light of the world. And uh, I thought it was very fitting that Pastor Terry centralized this series around this idea of being God's beacon, being a beacon of love, be his beacon of truth, be a beacon of hope that is found in Jesus Christ. Last week, Pastor Terry spoke on commitment, clarifying that a commitment made to God should be better viewed as a covenant made with God. He spoke on how God's commitment to you was all in. And we know this. And so our commitment to him needs to be the same, all in. Just as God gave all of himself and his commitment to us, we are to surrender all of ourselves in our commitment to him. And in so doing, we become a beacon of his light, a living beacon reflecting his love his truth, and the hope that is found in saving faith in Jesus Christ. And this light is not only for each other, but for the people that God has strategically placed around you, for our community, for your family, for your kids, for your neighbors. I think a beacon is the perfect imagery for this, because what does a beacon do? It reflects the light. That's what a, the, the function of a, uh, of a beacon uh, it reflects the light that is there, it, it refl- it, and that light draws people in. You guys ever seen a beacon uh, or a, a bright shaft of light waving around the night sky? Where do your eyes immediately go when you see that? Down to the source. You kind of look down and wonder also. I wonder what's going on over there. Must be a carnival. Must be some sort of convention. I wonder what's going on. It draws people in. What did a beacon of light do for mariners back in the day? They would help guide vessels in and out of the harbors. And it served as a warning of dangerous shallows or rocky shores, rocky coasts. A beacon draws. A beacon guides. A beacon warns of peril. God has called you to be the light. Whose light is it? The light is Christ. How does a beacon shine its light? It reflects the light. And who is that light? Christ Jesus. This morning, I'm going to cover the love portion of this series. If you have your Bibles, like I said, please open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. They call this, it's, you know, affectionately called the chapter of love. You probably traditionally hear uh, verses, these verses unpacked at a wedding. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, but I want us to have, have a little bit more focused understanding of what's really being said in this passage, I do hope to offer us a refined perspective on what's being said about love, specifically God's love in this passage. Now, we're going to be using this word a lot this morning, the word love. Problem is, this word, at least in our English language, comes with it a lot of baggage that we need to sort through. You see, in our English language, we use the word love in a wide variety of different ways that does not connect 
with what's being talked about in 1 Corinthians 13. And throughout all the Bible, when it talks about the essence of who God is being love. We use that word, we've almost cheapened the word. I asked um, uh, my boy, Hayes, uh, he speaks Cantonese, a little bit of Mandarin, a little bit of Japanese, and he speaks English as well. And I asked him, hey, uh, in Cantonese, do you use the word love to describe, you know, a wide variety of different affections for different things and people? And he's like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, you know, I, I, I use love uh, in, a, in, a way, in a wide variety of different ways. I say I love my wife, but I also say I love hot dogs. You guys do the same thing in Cantonese. And he thought about it for a little a minute. He's like, no, not really. Like, you love people. You don't love things. Like, I would say I would love my mom, but I wouldn't say I love hot dogs in Cantonese. That just sounds weird. Like, good. That should sound weird. You know, love should have a particular kind of weight to it. And I think it gets lost in our English language. I do wonder if other, other languages have this issue. But we need to sort out just a few things before we unpack this passage. Some of this might sound a little rudimentary, but that's okay. Because I think we need all to be on the same page here on what we mean by the word love. So let me ask you a question. Have you ever seen this phrase before? Love is love. Is that true? How do you feel about that statement? Does that statement have any merit? Now, you may have seen phrases or banners with uh, this phrase, love is love, maybe around October. Uh, it's, October is considered the, the, pride of, uh, the month of pride, pride month. But agendas aside, is this statement true? Love is love. How about this? All you need is love. This is one of the most famous phrases when it comes to the word love. When I went to Google to look for this image, I typed in all why, and it finished the rest of the thing. All you need is love? That's what you're looking for? Yeah, that's what you want, right? All right, I got you. All why, and it already finished it for me. Very famous phrasing. All you need is love. All you need is love, right? I can't sing. I'm not going to do it. But you know what I'm talking about. Very famous phrase. Is it true? All you need is love? All you need is love for what? All you need is love in relationships? What kind of love are we talking about here? In the English language, we have at least... 13 very common expressions of the word love, all used very differently. Now, we know some of those practical examples already. I don't love my wife the same way I love hot dogs. Okay, that's a pretty obvious example. But how about something a little more nuanced? What if someone says, I am so in love with her? What kind of love is that? Is that the same love? as when I say, I love my wife. Same word. Both are in the, within the context of relationships. Do they mean the same thing? Here's a quick list of how love is commonly used in the English language. Again, this is not an exhaustive list. As I was going through this, I just stopped at 13. There's a whole lot more. But these are some of the, I would feel, the more common ones. Excuse me, the... the 
the bold portion is the definition of the word love, a very real definition, followed by an example. An example of that love being used in a sentence. For instance, romantic affection. She was his first love. We know what that means. We identify with that phrase. We know exactly what they're, what they're talking about. We're talking about a, ro- a romantic relationship. Or, or a shirt, something as simply as sending your love. An assurance of affection. Someone who you love who is not with you in your presence, but somebody is about to go be in their presence. And you say, send them, uh, send them my love. Or even a simple uh, closing to a letter, a letter an, affectionate, an affectionate closing to a note or a letter. Love, Uncle Bob. I love you. They're not even saying I love you. Just saying love, Uncle Bob. Or how about a point of satisfaction? I love it when a plan comes together. Any fans of the A-team? No? All right. Whatever. <laughs> I love it when a plan comes together. Or how about unwavering devotion? 27 seasons of failure and disappointment could not deter his love for the Cowboys. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I bleed blue. Sorry. Um, getting off topic here. Utmost preference. I love the beach. I'd live there if I could. A term of endearment. Here's the card, my love. Get whatever you want. Or even a casual term of endearment. Yes, love, how can I help you? This is a weird one. To thrive optimally. This is a real definition. The example was rose bushes love sunlight. We're using the word love in attributing to the inanimate object. But what are we saying? Like It thrives optimally within sunlight. This plant loves water. You can't water it too much. We do this all the time. How about relational exclusivity? And some people have a hard time saying, I love you. God says we are called to love one another. Some have a hard time saying, I love you. Because the only realm of understanding and application they use it for is a relational exclusivity. Saying, I can't say I love you yet. I'm not ready to commit. And so the refrain from even saying the words, I love you, when God has called us to love one another. How about sensual attraction? It was love at first sight. Or to copulate. They made love. Or deep-rooted bond. I love you guys. You're like family to me. Loyalty. We'll always love you even unto death. This is 13 very common uses of the word. You probably have seen, heard these many times. Some of them I think is a gross cheapening of the word. And yet we say that the primary essence of who God is is love. Which one of those is him? Which one of those describes the full depth, width, height, and length of the, of the love of God? I'd say loyalty might be the closest one. When God says that he, when, you, when someone walks up to you or you see the phrase out there or see a t-shirt that says Jesus loves you, which love are you attributing to that word? There are more different expressions. 
So understand this, they're all used very differently, but it's the same word. Yet these expressions are not the same. They're not equal in value. They're not interchangeable. They, They are not demonstrated, felt, or experienced in the same way. But love is love, right? Love is love. All you need is love. Is that true? Well, it depends on what love we're talking about. This is important to talk on the front end of this because we're going to be using this word a lot in the passage, and I don't want us to be confused as to what love we're talking about here. I ne- we need this love to have the full weight that it was intended to have as you read this passage. All you need is love. Let's get a little bit, a little bit more pointed with this, just to drive this point home. How about Amnon's love for Tamar? Y'all remember that? Uh, Amnon, that was King David's son. He was incredible. He was he was deeply in love with Tamar, his half sister. This is what he says: "Is I am in love with Tamar, my brother's my brother Absalom's sister." This is actually a pretty disturbing story. Verse number two says he became obsessed with her. He said, I love her. He said, I love her. And he describes this love as being so intense that it made him sick. This intense infatuation, which he called love, by the way, literally made him ill. So what did Amnon do? to assuage this this ill-inducing love that he felt for Tamar. He raped her. And that might sound coarse to you, but he used the word, I love her. And it was demonstrated by violating her. But love is love, right? Right afterwards, Verse 15 says, then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Love is love? No. That's not God's love. And yet people have experienced this kind of relational turmoil under the umbrella of love all the time. That's not the love of God. The world and God's truth do not use the word love in the same way. When we talk about the character and nature of who God is, which is love, you cannot let the world define what that word means or allow any baggage of our culture connected to that word to influence your reception of that word biblically. Listen, believing that love is love is the tragic absence of truth in a person's life. Cannot let the culture define what love is. Only God can define it. And we know this. Like, just, just like the word marriage who invented marriage? Whose idea was, was it for Adam to not be alone? You know, we, we know that, that uh, God is the one who said it is not good for man to be alone. 
I will make for him a help me. Adam didn't go to God and say, hey, I'm lonely. It's, being, it's boring out here. It's only, it hasn't even been a day, a day yet. He didn't know he was alone. Because I know it's not good for you to be alone. Marriage was his idea. He is the one who defines it. We cannot redefine what marriage is, and we know that. Love is his very essence. If marriage can't be redefined, how can love? You understand what, are you, understand what I'm saying here? Love being his essence, it is the principal revelation of his divine character and nature to you and me, to the world. It is the first fruit of his Holy Spirit that bears evidence of his work in the life of a believer. That's what, that the first fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. We better understand what he means by that. Love is who he is. In 1 John 4, it tells us that if you know not God, you know not love, for God is love. We are to be his beacon, reflecting his version of love, that we better know what he means by the word love. We cannot adopt culturally defined expressions of love and apply them to biblical truth, specifically on what love means. This was the issue that was happening in Corinth when Paul wrote this letter. You got to remember, here in Corinth, you know, they must have had a very warped idea of what love was. Remember, they were coming out of a culture that was very violent, very sensual, very corrupt, and had every sort of physical pleasure a person wanted as a normal, accepted way of life in Corinth. So it's not hard to understand why Paul had to clearly redefine what love is exactly. So let's read the passage, and we'll unpack it a little further here in a, in a little bit. Look there with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse number 4. This is what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Is that true? Love never fails? I wonder if people read that and it's like, ah, that can't, that must be an overstatement. It must be overstated because love fails all the time. I've experienced failure in love. I hope we have a different perspective on that portion. Here's what's going on in this passage. Here's what's going, around, going on around this portion of scripture. Here, Paul is writing to a church who had an obvious zeal for the spiritual gifts and the pursuit of spiritual gifts. And, and in their zeal, they apparently drifted away from the heart and anchor of, of, of why the Spirit of God even empowered them with these gifts to begin with. 
Paul had to remind them of the most important virtue that they are chiefly called to pursue in life and ministry, and it was love. Apparently, they lost sight of this, and they started elevating certain gifts and began to look at particular gifts as a barometer of spiritual maturity and spiritual stature among themselves. And this introduced an obvious strain on their unity. Now, Paul did commend them for, for desiring the gifts, desiring spiritual gifts. He even, he even offers them a framework for pursuing the greater gifts. And, and, and by greater gifts, not greater as in stature, as, in, as if one is better than the other, saying greater gifts that will serve the body. The greater gifts that would be uh, beneficial to the body. Uh, and not the body, but the body of believers. But in the middle of explaining this framework, he pauses to remind them that, listen, guys, without love, by the way, this pursuit of spiritual gifts and any gift that you might be administering to the, to the body is pointless. It's useless. Your, your, your pursuit will mean nothing without love. Love is the foundation for you doing anything for God or the body. Later in chapter 4, he says, look, follow the way of love as you eagerly pursue the gifts of the Spirit. He had to refocus their purpose behind the things that they did in the body. He said the reason why this elevating of one gift over another is pride, which is the opposite of love. He says, follow the way of love as you eagerly pursue the gifts of the Spirit. Now, which love is he talking about? We know what love it is, which, which love he's not talking about. We gave a, a pretty significant list. But what love is he talking about? Which love is being used there in verse 4 and 6 and 8 and in the next chapter? It's this beautiful Greek word for God's love you might be familiar with, called agape. Right? Now, this is an important distinction. Because to them, love was traditionally understood as a physical experience or an emotional feeling. That's not much different than today. Remember, this culture considered love as a part of their continual pursuit to find something or someone to satisfy their own desires. Their idea of love, experientially, was, was very self-serving. It, it satisfied self, emotionally or physically. It wasn't this pure, selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love that was demonstrated by God into the lives of those who belonged to him. It was this eros phileo type of love and affection. I won't spend a lot of time here, but uh, eros was a word to describe affections that were experienced physically. It was conditional on, on attraction. I love you because you're hot. I love you because you have long, beautiful, flowing hair. I love you because I get lost in your eyes. I love you because the way you look. I love you because the way you make me feel physically. Phileo love 
Those affections experienced emotionally. Those conditional on feelings. Again, I love, the, I love the way you make me feel. You make me feel special. You make me feel valued. You make me feel important. You make me, I love the way you make me feel. If a relationship is founded on any one of these two, it's not going to last very long. I mean, looks fade, right? Oh, guys, when, you know, eventually, I tell young couples who are about to get married, we get, one of the few blessings I get to have is that some of my students from way back 10 years ago are starting to get married. I'm starting to do marriage counseling with them. And I have a, a gentleman named Hunter that I'm talking to right now. And I said, listen, man, you got to, talking to him about love, I said, look, one day uh, you're going to suffer what's called uh, furniture syndrome. Uh, that's when your chest falls into your drawers, all right? You know, all this stuff that you have up here, eventually that's going to go away, all right? Your love must be founded on something that's not contingent on how you look or how you feel. And God has given us the example. Now, these both, these both Greek words, they do translate to our English word love. But neither is the word used in this passage. Love or charity in these verses is the word agape, which is the same word used by New Testament writers when referring to the love of God. Agape is an, is an enduring choice. Here's the main difference. Any counterfeit is contingent on how you feel. Or what you're experiencing. This one is contingent on a choice that was made. It is an enduring choice of personal will and affection. Not contingent on emotions or feelings. It's selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love. That's the love of God. This, this is the word in John 3.16 that was used to describe the depths of God's sacrificial love revealed to the world when he willfully gave up his son for it. This is the love that prompted Christ to look upon those who were crucifying him while he was being crucified saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is the impossible love that the Holy Spirit manifests in the life of a believer when he faithfully walks with him according to Galatians 5.22. That's the love of God. It is his willful choice to love the unlovable and give of himself to the highest degree, laying down the life of his son so that his enemy might be saved. God, love is a choice. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Here's what it looks like. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. When's the last time you felt the full weight of that passage? When's the last time you really pondered what's being said there? I know you've seen this verse before. It's part of the Romans road when we're trying to share the gospel with someone. This is the depths of God's love that he chose to give of himself, his own son, 
to his enemy so that his enemy would have the opportunity to be made right with him. To have the opportunity to be saved. No longer being called an enemy of God, but being called his child. That's the love of God. That's how he loves. That's how much he loves you. You were his enemy once. And there may be some in this room that are still his enemy. It doesn't have to stay that way. God has made a way in his selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love to bring you unto himself if you would be willing. God's agape love is the beautiful light that draws men to saving grace. And he has called you to reflect that light. That's the light we're supposed to reflect as believers. If we claim faith and you say, yes, I want to be one who reflects the love of God, this is what it looks like. How do you do it? And we're going to close with this. Remember this. Moment to moment obedience. You might look at this passage that we just unpacked and, man, that's, that seems like a really tall order. I just need to love people more. No, 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 no. We're, we're missing it if that's what you're, draw, you're, coming, you're walking away with. Here's something we need to understand about these verses. This moment-to-moment obedience. Remember, the, the love of God is the essence of his character and nature. It was revealed by God himself. It was exemplified by Jesus. He was our example. But it is empowered by the Holy Spirit. If you're looking at that list like, man, I don't know if I can do that. You're right. You can't do that. It is God's work. It's his love. It's his light. You're the flashlight. He's the bulb. You're the spotlight. He's the fire. You're only reflecting what's already there. Moment to moment as you obey. Who does the Holy Spirit empower to love like Christ? You. Paul wasn't calling on Corinth to be more patient or to be more kind and to stop being envious or anything. He, he, was, he was saying love, he was saying love is. It's his work. So how is it supposed to look? Moment to moment obedience. As the moment to show patience presents itself, let his patience shine. Let his patience operate. Don't default to your own version of broken, uh, 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 your own broken version of, of, of patience, of what patience looks like. Let him show you what to do in the moment and obey. Like, God, oh, patience need, is needed right here. What do I do? And be obedient. Moment to moment. When the opportunity to show kindness presents itself, let his kindness operate. Not our own version. He's working. Let him work. In the moment, trust and obey his directions. 
It's the same for each one of these. When we don't understand this, it can make verse 8 seem so far-fetched. Love never fails. Oh, but I fail in love all the time. Yeah, you do. So do I. We fail at loving God all the time. But his love is perfect. From moment to moment, let his love operate. Step out of the way and let him have control. This is the last thing I'll share. When I was a kid, I'm still a kid. I used to like playing video games. I still like playing video games. Last thing I'll share. We'll go. We'll go. There was this old game called Halo. Okay? Now, if you're not a gamer, I'm about to get you into the gamer world for just a moment. In Halo, it was a game you can play with up to 16 people. Okay? You would attach the game consoles to different rooms, and 16 people would be playing this one game. Everybody trying to kill each other. I wouldn't recommend the game. We had, one time we were playing, and uh, we had more than 16 people over at the house, and, uh, and uh, it was my turn to play. There's a guy named Robert, probably the best Halo player on the planet. He's just, he's just amazing. And uh, he wasn't playing this time. Okay? Now, my little, my name's, my little screen name was Wooga Wooly. Okay, now I'm near the bottom. I know how to play, but I wasn't doing very good. Now, Robert's sitting behind me. He's watching me play. He's eating Doritos. You know, and he, I hear him say, don't go down that way. I'm like, no, I need to, there's a gun down there I want to go get. And as soon as I walk down there, poof, you know, I'm gone. And he kept saying, don't go that way. And, uh, and I was just getting obliterated. And I look back at him, and I go, I, I, I do this. He's like, good job. So he, he plays maybe three, four minutes, and I hear from different rooms, who's Wooga Wooly? <laughs> who's, I mean, just in a few moments, my name was going up that rank all the way to the top, and then no one's seen Wooga Wooly all day up in the top three, and I'm number one. Now, I knew how to play the game. But I handed the control to the person who knew what he was doing. A lot better than I could. I understood the concept. But control in my hands was not successful. Moment to moment obedience. That's how you reflect the love of God. Mm-hmm.